You're on the Wine Show 96.5 Inner FM. We have our first guest on the show now, Mick Dowling from MW Wines. Good morning, Mick. Morning, Phil. How are you, mate? I'm very well. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Um, Mick, so what is your official title at MW Wines? Uh, National Sales Manager. National Sales Manager. How long have you been doing that for? Well, three of it years. Um, yeah, started uh, started the beginning of 2017. Now, Mick, you sound like you're a million miles away from the phone. Are you able to get a bit closer for us? How's that? Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Thank you. Now, I now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the first time we chatted, you were the Grolsch rep. Did, was that something you did in the past? Well, yeah, that's, that's going back. I yes, know. Um, my, uh, my, uh, my job title was... Uh, Premium beer brand development executive, which sounded very, very <laughs> fancy, but um, basically uh, I, I was uh, promoted from the warehouse at Tucker Seabrook, which is uh, no longer um, around, and um, uh, to the beer side, we had uh, Grolsch uh, from Holland, we had Beamish Irish Stout, Newcastle Ground Ale, and Pike's Oak Bank from the Pike's Wine family. That was our stable of beers, and my yep. job was to go out. And, uh, and try and, you know, uh, promote those and sell those and develop those brands. And I did that for almost three years, which was it was a lot of fun, actually. It was a pretty awesome way to get started in sales because you really didn't need to know that much about the product. Not really asked to get the product. It was <laughs> more about pricing and positioning and all that sort of stuff. But no, it was fun. It was a good job. I reckon I was working at um, Liquorland at the time. I'd gone to Quaffers. I'm really showing my age now. And <laughs> I tried some of the Lentbock. And I called yep. you up, say, you know, hey, can I get some? And you, um, you told me basically, no, it was too niche, and <laughs> it's not going to happen ever. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. A, one of the fun parts of your job, no doubt. Um, yeah, mate, oh, uh, you take me back. Grolsch was pretty good at telling us they had exclusives for us when they had stuff they couldn't sell in other markets, so they would uh, I'd ship it down. Like they'd send you a seasonal beer. Which made sense in the northern hemisphere, but very seldom does it make sense <laughs> in the southern. So you get sun rail in June and things like that. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, that was God quaffers. Yeah. When, uh, when did they go to God? That feels like a long time ago. It does feel like a long time ago. I feel very old some days when I reminisce. Hey, um, you've done some interesting things in your time, though. You said you you're working at Tucker's and you're working at Fine Wine Partners. And then you graduated to Peter Lehman. You were working with PL for a while there and also Torbrek. So that's quite a journey you've been through. Was that always the plan, the progression in your mind? Um, oh, no, I wouldn't say. But I, I've never had it mapped out. So I've never had a grand plan in any great way. I think I, um, I did, you know, for all intents and purposes, between the beer thing and the first territory in the northern and western suburbs of Melbourne for Tucker's as a wine rep, um, I think I probably realised I didn't want to be a um, uh, like a manager of a team of people and I, I was happy to go out and sell I preferred to just be on the road um, so the logical progression in that instance is generally um, like a key account manager's role or something like that although key account manager's roles in a lot of places now means looking after big chains like uh, you know Woolworths and Coles and that never interested me either yeah. um, so yeah, I think listen, I did my time at uh, Tucker's, which was merged into the live basic business to become Fine Wine Partners. And I, um, you know, I, I loved a lot of the guys I worked with, and we had some great brands and a decent portfolio. But I hated working for big companies. Um, we had, you know, we had a you know we were always human resource driven sort of place with uh, with all sorts of you know. I actually, I dropped the f bomb in the office one day because mm-hmm. they'd uh, they'd smashed a box of Burgundy which had been flooded over specifically for a customer. Yeah. And, um, and the, uh, the, the the human resources manager flew down from Sydney to counselling. I thought I was going to get fired. <laughs> um, I had to 
I had to go around and apologise to every person in the office, even those that weren't there at the time, just in case I've upset or offended anyone for dropping the F-bomb. So um, <laughs> I knew at that moment when I, they made me sign like a three-page document they'd written about how apologetic I was and how, you know, all that sort of thing. I had to ring the customer service girl on the other end of the phone. And anyway, it was a really pride-sappy. I thought, I need out of this place. I'm not, you know, and I made a commitment to myself then. So that was 2008. I made a I made a commitment that I'd never work anywhere again that was big enough to need a human resources department. <laughs> and um, and 12 years on, I've managed to stick to that. So I went to Lehman as their Victorian Tasmanian market manager, which was all sorts of fun. Just a brilliant team of people. Um, you know, uh, it was one of those places where you, you came over to do your induction and you'd sit down at this big, massive, long kitchen table with Peter and Margaret Lehman and you'd drink you know, a bottle of Semion and they'd smoke 4,000 cigarettes and you just learn about the Barossa and what made that place so special and the people and the growers at Lehman and, you know, you really bought into the story. I loved it. Well, um, they're, um, so, they're legends of the industry. Just that experience alone, people would have paid to do that, let alone being able to, you know, tap into them for your work. Oh, so I would have paid to do it. I would have, I would have paid to do it. Yeah. I mean, Peter, obviously, we lost him a little, a little while ago, uh, but Margaret's still as feisty as ever, still, you know, you know. I mean, I think the last big project she did was uh, shutting down the uh, likelihood of them putting a McDonald's in the Barossa Valley. Yep. You know, she left the chance to make sure she didn't do that. But, yeah, that, that was humbling to work for people like that. I mean, even though Lehman was owned by this, uh, this Swiss dude, Donald Hess, um, uh, you know, Peter was still very much, like his, his house was on the property. You know, you still felt like it was him. And, you know, it was a, it was a very different beast. And even though we employed like 100 people, those human resources for which I love, so um, that was cool. You know, you you sort of did, did your own thing, and yeah, we had tons of fun. And I did that for three years. And be fair to say, um, we yeah, I, I loved it. But um, they wanted to leave uh, Yolumba or Sam Smith and Sunday with our distributor yeah. and go with someone else. And I thought it was a dreadful idea. And I think I promoted the national sales manager, but um, I knew that it was only going to be a short term thing because I um, I just didn't want to be a part of this transition where we started looking after change directly ourselves and it was a model that, um, that scared a lot of distributors you know and yeah, wasn't, sure. something I wanted to, wasn't something I wanted to do so I left and this job at Torbert came up and all of a sudden um, yeah that is just a complete other story next thing I'm, I'm sitting in front of Dave Powell and you know just having some insanely fun times and drinking some extraordinary wines and yeah it was a very different half from selling 8 and $10 bottles of wine to you know $700 bottles of wine and, um, and the brand was amazing and actually, there's some. I've got some fond memories from your time at Torbrek, particularly one dinner we did. But even one of the customers, uh, Christopher, a regular contributor. Good morning, Christopher. Thanks for listening. He said uh, he had some fun nights with you during your Torbrek days. And um, I mean, it seemed it was a little bit party time when you were at Torbrek. Was, it was very much party time. <laughs> I, mean, I was there. I was there five years, and um, there was the, the pre. You know, the, the, the David Powell and the post-David Powell So Powell left in 2013 and halfway through my stint. But, um, yeah, he he would come over. Like, I remember one time he came over. We, had, we would have so many events. We'd just have, you know, lunch, dinner, tasting, you know, master class, whatever. It was just constant. You know, we never went out and kicked ties and saw customers. We just did events. And they, they were always really successful. Because Dave travelled 200-plus days a year. He was never, you know, he was never nearby. But... One time he came in, I think he'd flown in from Beijing or something, I picked him up at the airport, and we didn't have anything on that day until the night. And I said, come on, Dave, let's, um, let's head to the steakhouse for a bottle of lunch. So we went to the steakhouse, and I'm thinking, you know, we're about to embark on dinner, lunch, masterclass, dinner, master, like it's, you know, 
seven events in three days or something. Let's you know, let's have a nice piece of fish and a glass of white wine, and things will be great. And anyway, Pally orders a five hundred gram ribeye and a bottle of Chardonnay <laughs> for lunch. And I and I wanted to begin this. So I'm, first thing I'm thinking is, well, this Chardonnay is not going to do that a lot of joy. But no. um, yeah. Needless to say, um, I said to Pally, mate, um, we're going to eat a lot of red meat and drink a lot of red wine over the next three days, Pally. You sure you fancy steak? And I won't repeat what he said back to me, Phil, but it wasn't very pleasant. Um, but he, uh, needless to say, that was the start of probably three of the biggest days of my life. We we went out that night and did a dinner at uh, Society um, in Bird yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah. And I think Pally was, you know, he'd been doing so many events that month that he was a bit sick of drinking tall bricks. So I said, listen, I'm going to need a little chaser in between each course. So, you know, I think we did 10 reds that night and he had a, a rum and coke in between each red. Um, and uh, and it was, it was top shelf rum. So it was like, just give me the best rum I've got with some coconut. <laughs> and then um, and then at the end of that, you know, you know, finished around eleven. So you know, he's punched because I was drawing earlier in the day. He's punched a better part of a bottle in at lunch, and a few gins in the afternoon, and then you know, after this dinner and a whole heap of rum and a whole heap of red, and then says to me at about eleven thirty, goes, "Shall we go to the supper club?" Now, when when Dave Powell says, "Do you want to go to the supper club?" You say yes because you know you're going to drink something spectacular. So we went over yeah. there. Had a couple of GNTs and he said, Can I have a bottle of Coast Dere, please? This, uh, you know, 09 Coast Dere. Yep, no problem. So I go away, come back about 20 minutes later. Really sorry, Mr. Powell. We can't find the, the 09 Village Merceau. We've got 09 Le Rougeau, but we've got the 2010 Village, which would prefer. And he said, Oh, put the 10 in the canter and give me the 9 now. So he and I sat there <laughs> until about 3.30 in the morning and drank uh, two bottles of Coast Dere. Yep. And then Pally being Pally wanted to kick on, so we went to a club, um, you know, a, a club of ill repute, needless to say. And uh, I think about 5.30 in the morning, I said, Pally, pretty sure I'm going to make my kids breakfast in about two hours. Can I go, please, mate? And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, it's probably a good time to pull up in. And that was night one of three days. And uh, and every night was like that. And that was what it was like with Pally. He'd, he'd walk, in, walk into the supper club and say, get me a bottle of Krug and a wine list. Yeah, well, they're a bit taxing, though. How do you, I mean, how do you stump up the next day after being out till 5.30 and, you know, you've got to be enthusiastic and selling, selling tour break? Yeah, well, I've never been, never been physically fit, as you know, Phil, but uh, I've always been alcohol fit. And um, <laughs> it, was, it was just something that you had to do, like, you that was the amazing thing. He would he would leave you after three days like that, get on a plane, probably go home to the Parossa for two days, be on a plane to do it all again, whereas I would go home after those three days and sleep for a day and a half because I would just be absolutely cooked, like completely and utterly cooked. So, um, yeah, I don't know how he did it. He was incredible. You know, he was, there was legends about him from his younger days where if he had a flight that was leaving any time before 10 in the morning, he just wouldn't bother going to bed. He'd just go straight through. Um, but, yeah, he, he was incredible with that. So you couldn't question his ability um, to front up. He would, you know, he would have these monster nights, absolute benders, and then you'd be up there doing lunch the next day, and you know, you wouldn't know any better. But a couple of times, needless to say, you know, we'd go to lunch the next day, and I was very sheepish trying to ingest anything. But yeah. uh, but you had to do it. What can you do, Phil? Like you could, you certainly could say, "Pally, I don't feel well." You wouldn't. Uh, you would have been out on your ear pretty quickly. It's, uh, so we were talking to Mick Dowling from MW Wines, and at the moment Mick's just reminiscing about the good old days when David Powell would shout him all this amazing booze as part of his uh, job, you know, an obligation of the job by the sounds of it. And yeah, he, uh, he once, this is one of my funniest stories about Powell, I love this, but he, I think I started in September, 
and he was in Melbourne in November, and he said, um, he said let's let's go somewhere nice for dynamic because we had a free night. Yep. So I booked this table with Udemont, and that was I was thinking, you know, this is probably the best chance I'm ever going to get to do Udemont properly. Like I'm going to really experience Udemont in all its glory. And um, and they the only table they give us was I think six o'clock, and you had to be out by eight fifteen. And I thought, oh, how he's not going to like that at all. No. But I thought. Once he starts ordering booze, I reckon we're a show to hang around here. And, uh, and needless to say, I think he walked in and I said, you know, I said, you know, you can have five courses, seven courses, you know, nine courses or ten courses of truffles. And Pally goes up, ten, ten courses of truffles, thanks, mate. So I think, we, you know, we've been there ten seconds, we've already dropped a thousand. That was a good start, and there was four of us. And, and then, um, you know, we had a bottle of Eguiorio Blanc de Noir in about 15 minutes, that was gone. And then we had a 96 Rabineau Valmeur, which was at that time the greatest white burgundy I'd ever had. It was absolutely amazing. Yep, um, pretty smart. And yes. then we had had a 1978 Nicholas Pinnell Santonet, a little, you know, a little red bird. Yep. And then uh, Powley with his big smile on his face has got the list in front of him. And he points at this bottle and says to the song, Marcus Radnick, says, how many of these you got? He goes, I've only got one of those. He goes, go and get it. And he comes back with a 1962 Penfold Pen 68, um, which you know is probably you know probably one of the most revered wines ever produced in Australia, if not the most revered. And I think it was 5800 on the list. Yep. And uh, and needless to say, we made very short work of that. And I was, I was sitting there thinking, as you know, as uh, you know, Shannon actually himself leant over my shoulder and shaved a white over truffle the size of a cricket ball under my risotto <laughs> as I drank my glass of bin 68 and I thought I'm quite going to like this touring place I think and that was that was an early off there was another half a dozen bottles after that Quintarelli, Del Policella I start to get a bit hazy after that yep. but, um, but th- those were the sort of nights that you had with Pally sometimes you know it was it was amazing he was very generous with other people's cash needless to say but um, <laughs> yeah it was a lot of fun and after he left, did the good times continue, or is it a little bit more austere? Oh, uh, listen, they didn't—they didn't continue at that level, obviously, because that was crazy. Um, but they were a very generous company and a very, very well-funded company. The yep. guy who invented, uh, or the guy who purchased Torbrick, um, uh, Pete Tight, uh, incredibly wealthy businessman. He actually uh, he invented EFT. Um, in the States and sold it off to this company called Fiserv for like $4.7 billion or something. And anyway, so he, there was never any issues with money and we were, a, you know, a premium wine brand. So we still had to go out there and be a premium wine brand. You can't, you know, you know, Powell, as Powell said to me once, you can't sell Runrig and then go to dinner and drink Jacob's Creek. You know, yeah. you just can't do that. So, yeah. no, we, we still had a lot of fun. It was a great team. It was a good environment. Yeah, things changed. We never became a corporate business. We still only employed about 25 people. But, yeah, needless to say, things tightened up a little bit. And um, I'm just curious, during all of this time, was it okay to drop the F-bomb even without the HR managers? Was it Was it something that was done? Oh, my God. I mean, no one did it more than Powell. But, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Abs- absolutely. It was a very a very casual, laid-back sort of place to work. There was, you know, no dramas. I mean, everyone was a professional, you know, uh, unlike uh, most wineries that have distributors with networks of sales teams. You know, we were uh, one person per state. You know, we had... One person in SA, one person in Vic. You know, I looked after Taz as well. Yeah. You know, we had the national guy in New South Wales with the state guy, and one guy in Queensland, and that was us. That was all we had. So, um, you know, you had to be good at your job because you had to spread yourself pretty thin. You know, I looked after a network of you know three or four hundred customers, but um, there was yeah, it was pretty cash. Yes, there was a lot of f bombs being dropped, <laughs> and you know, we'd still get together and it'd get a bit loose, but um, it was a little bit different. 
the sort of obviously you know, when Powley was there. Hey Mick, are you able to hang around for a little bit? Sure. I just got to do a couple of messages and we'll come back and keep chatting. We'll chat about your uh, current employment. You're back live on The Wine Show, 96.5 Inner FM. My name is Phil Smith and on the phone is Mick Dowling, a national sales manager from MW Wines. Uh, Mick, we've talked about your past and some of your employment and the just the amazing excess that you've managed to uh, tap into. <laughs> yep. And because more is more, you now work at MW Wines, which is in uh, Collingwood. And yep. in fact, uh, the owner of the current owner of MW Wines was a customer of mine way back in the day and one day walked into the shop and said, oh, by the way, I bought MW Wines. Now, um, which was a bit of a shock, but uh, you know, he certainly has a passion for wine. How did you get involved with MW? Um, listen, truth be told, I, I'd, uh, I knew Nick because he was a customer of mine. You know, I sold some tour back to MW. Um, yep. And, you know, I called on MW before Nick owned it as well when, when Joseph and Robert had it. But, um, yeah, Nick... Um, Nick and I became mates. I suppose we, uh, you know, we went to. I took him on a, on a trip to the Barossa once. It was one of those trips that we used to do with Torbert, which was you know a big couple of days and a lot of fun. And um, yep. he and I had a couple of lunches together over the uh, the years. And then um, one day out of the blue, he gives me a phone call and says, "Mate, um, uh, can you come in and see me? I want to have a chat to you about something." And I put the phone out straight away. I said, "Well, that's weird because Nick Nick wasn't sort of a, a you know a mess around sort of guy. He you know if he wanted something like he wanted to buy some wine and he wanted to talk about an event, he just would have come out with it. So the fact that he was a bit vague, I thought." I think he's going to talk to me about a job. And the first thing I thought was, I'd been at Torbrick five years, and, you know, five years of talking about Barossa Shiraz, you know, and three years before that at Lehman. You know, I was was getting, you know, a little bit bored with talking about the same wines over and over again. So, um, so the first thing I looked at was their portfolio of wines, this suite of just extraordinary burgundy and amazing, iconic Australian wines from all over the place. And I thought, wow, I mean, this... This could be a really cool opportunity. So I went and sat with Nick and we had a chat. And, you know, what came out of it was, wow, you know, we'd love to work together. This could be really, really cool. And um, and we had one more catch-up after that, which was, you know, relatively in terms of formality. You know, this is, this is where I'm at. This is where I think you could be at. What do you think? And I just thought to myself, as much as I was comfortable at Torbrick, you know, I was really doing it well there. I was having a lot of fun there. And we were selling lots of wine and they were happy and I was happy. But I just thought, if I turn this down, I'm never, ever going to work anywhere. Yep. Or I can learn as much about the wines that I'm in love with, which is, you know, predominantly, obviously, Burgundy, but obviously Australia as well. And um, and I thought, you know, this is a really cool business um, to be a part of. You know, we'd be cool to be a part of a team again that, that isn't in another state because the last, you know, eight years of my life prior to that, all my colleagues have been in another state, so you were pretty isolated. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, so that was sort of how that started. And... Um, it's been a really cool time. Like, uh, no two days are the same. We've got a really eclectic sort of business model that's quite unique. And I, I genuinely, I don't think anyone in Australia has anywhere near the sort of collection of wines that we have. We've an extraordinary suite of wines to sell. And um, it's a really, really cool business. Well, why don't you tell us about MW for people who don't know? It's, it's obviously, it's been around for ages and it's quite iconic. But, yeah, just tell us the, the business model and how it operates. So... For all intents and purposes, the, the business operates in um, you know in, in four different uh, channels, I suppose. So you've got storage. You know we've got a about a thousand square meters of climate controlled storage. So there's uh, lockers, you know wine lockers, and then there's managed storage where you can just send the wine to us and we take care of everything for you. Yeah. Um, so that that's a great business because it's a constant and it's about ninety five percent full most of the time. So so that just keeps ticking along. Um, then there's um, 
the auction side of the business. So we, uh, we're the biggest family-owned auction house in the country. Uh, I think we're the second biggest auction house in Australia behind Langton's, which is owned by Woolworths. Yep. And um, we have monthly auctions. And any auction will have from, you know, eight to ten to sometimes 12,000 bottles of wine available for sale. So it's a massive undertaking getting these auctions up and running. You know, if you can imagine every one of those bottles has been inspected, catalogued, you know, put away, and then when it gets sold... It has to get picked and freighted or picked up by the customer or however it goes. But um, I can't actually so imagine that scale, no. <laughs> that's incredible, isn't it? Well, well, we employ nine people, and yep. for all intents and purposes, probably five to six people are completely, wholly, solely devoted to the auction because there's just so much work um, getting that up and running. Yep. And they, they do a massive job there. The auction manager, Anthony, does a huge job getting it happening every month. But... It, it runs really well. Um, it's online for a week, so, you know, it's, there's no, you don't have to come and sit in the room and hold up a paddle and bid on a lot, you know, it's, it's all done online. And um, it, it is, listen, I'd never purchased a bottle of wine through auction in my life prior to starting at MW, and I don't reckon there's been a month go by now in the last three years and four months or whatever that I haven't purchased at auction, much to my wife's chagrin. Yes. But, um, but it, it is, it's an amazing place to find a bevy of, you know, really cool wines and the price is really competitive and, you know, I've had great experiences. Um, but that's that's another side of the business. And then obviously we have the website where we uh, we do online wine sales to you know, consumers. And that's obviously pretty big because people go hunting for old and rare wines and they often find us because we've got, you know, 30 or 40 different vintages of Grange and we've got DRCs and Rousseaus and, you know, at any given time we might have Ravenos and Coches and things like that. You know, there's always a 82 Bordeaux and 2,000 Bordeaux. You know, so it's... It's amazing what you can find there. And then the last side, which is a little quiet at the minute still, is the trade side. We sell quite a lot of wine to restaurants, but obviously yep. there's not, not tons of that going on right at the minute, but that's always been a, a good side of the business, and that's um, yeah, that's certainly important to us as well. But, yeah, so from that side, it's a, it's a really unique business. I don't think there's anyone else that does anything quite like it. Yeah, it's amazing, and I've bought some stuff, and occasionally there's some certain champagnes or Chablis producers. The minute they go on your list, I'm giving you a call. You can almost guess what I'm calling you about. Yeah, uh, it's usually Sir Lossville. I know what you're, I know what you're calling <laughs> <about>. <laughs> Don't tell everyone about it. <laughs> um, but also, following you on social media, your knockoff drinks have not diminished since your time at Torbrek. I, I can, I just, I'm in envy of the wines you get to drink almost daily. So am I. Um, and, listen, and, and truth be told, it's one of the things that really uh, drew me into the business. Uh, there's a fantastic wine culture. Like no one who works there isn't a wine person. We're all very passionate wine people. Um, you know, it's not all. You know, there's no logistic people that just do you know grunt work and lifting boxes. Everyone there is a, a dedicated, passionate wine person. Yeah. And five o'clock every night, we down tools, and you know, someone takes a turn and they bring out a wine blind, and we play options. And it's just a fantastic way to learn, to be able to do that, you know, for your palate, you know, three, four times a week, depending on, you know, you're not always there, but when you are there. Um, now, obviously, the nights that Nick opens something are the nights you really want to be there because he, <laughs> opens, he opens great wines. I mean, Nick's... I, I, I made a joke with him the other day that he's probably got more Grand Cru from one village than I've got booze. Yeah. Um, you know, like, his cellar is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, and he's incredibly generous. Um, like, uh, you know, probably more so than Powley was. Um, he's absolutely incredibly generous with opening just spectacular wines. So we get to look at so many great things. But the other guys, they all step up as well. They all open great things and, you know, and it, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, so from that perspective, you know, we have a couple of dinners a year, you know, obviously a Christmas dinner and, uh, and a Christmas in July dinner. 
and those are legendary as well. Like we drink some insanely great wines there. Um, I can't imagine any environment where I'll ever get to drink wines like this again so consistently. It's, it's really one of the coolest things about being there. Yeah, oh, that sounds amazing. And it's great too having that community around you. Like you say, people who share the interest are passionate about what you're passionate about and you can indulge in it together because it's, like, it's a pretty sad life if you're just drinking wine on your own, not being able to share it and talk about it because that's, that's all the fun, I think. I think that's what we all want. Um, you know, I think as much as, you know, I think you're probably the exact same as me, Phil, and you and I share plenty of bottles together. Sure I think one of my first rabbit with you out in... Uh, Middle Park at a duck joint from memory. Oh, yes, I remember that um, very well. <laughs> yep, yep. But um, I I think um, you'd much rather open, you know, one wine and share it with 10 people and then share nine other bottles of wine and just get a little bit of a look and just get some insight. You know, I think I'd much rather do that than drink one great bottle of wine on my own. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and there's no bragging rights. It's kind of like, you know, if a tree falls in a forest, how good was the wine? You can't prove it to anyone. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I think uh, we all have that regret sometimes. You go, man, I wish I'd bought more of that or wish I'd hung on to more of that. Or, But, you know, at the same time, you know, wine, wine's one of those shared experiences, whether it's, you know, with your wife or with someone else who's just passionate about wine like you are. You know, it's, uh, it's a nothing thing if you drink it on your own. Um, Mick, I have a shared experience of ours, and you probably won't like me bring this up, but back when you were selling Peter Lehman, you brought in a wine. You said, oh, it's these five varieties. If you can guess the fifth one, I'll give you a bottle of Stonewell. <laughs> And I still have that bottle of Stonewell, the empty bottle. I kept it. <laughs> Your face, absolutely priceless when you, uh, when you, uh, when I revealed what it was, and um, it was just really bad timing because you brought in. Was it a? It was a Bandol blend, I think, from memory. And was it the layers? Yeah, and I'd just yep. been drinking a whole lot of Bandol. So you mentioned the four varieties. And I'm like, oh, the fifth one's got to be Cinso or Carignan. I can't remember which one it was, and. <laughs> Um, oh, just good times. And I think, in fact, yep. um, Cyril Russo was there at the time, uh, famous Burgundy family. She thought that was just hilarious. Yeah, I've actually met her. I was in, uh, in Berg last year, and she was absolutely lovely. But, yeah, I, I, I still remember, and I've, I've done that to a few people, Phil, and no one's ever pinged it. And you pinged it. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's crazy. I don't know how we did that. But, yeah, that was, uh, God, that was fun. That was really hard work to sell. Layers. The white blend was like Gewurz, Musket, Gris, Semillon, Chardonnay. And it was from the GI of Adelaide, which I didn't know prior to that actually existed. There was a GI of Adelaide, which encompassed like, you know, the Virginia Plains as well as the Adelaide Hills and McLaren Vale and Barossa. It was crazy. But uh, yeah, that was a very short-lived uh, experiment by one of the marketing guys. They were ahead of their time, though. Now people are doing those blends. They're just not adding sulfur. And, you know, it's all the age. <laughs> Wasn't a lot of natty juice coming out of leaving, mate. They love sulfur there. I'm very keen on sulfur. Uh, I can bet. Hey, Mick, I probably should let you go and enjoy your time with your family. I know it's Sunday, and I appreciate you uh, making time to have a chat to us this morning on the radio. Hopefully, we'll chat to you again in the near future and share some more stories. My pleasure, Phil. Thanks for having me on. Absolute, absolute pleasure. It was Mick Dowling from MW Wines. Uh, they do a lot of things. You can check them out, mwwines.com.au.